Hello, this is Carlos Munoz. You need more following. Welcome to another More Front Wing podcast. I'm Steph Walcraft, joined by my co-editor at More Front Wing, Paul Dalby. And we're here to cover a whole bunch of stuff for you tonight. We're going to look all the way back to the, uh, oh gosh, what was the name of that? The Chevrolet, I never did get this one right, did I? The Chevrolet Indy Duel in Detroit? Is that the one? The braces on Belle Isle. Right, those ones. Um, (laughs) We're going to look all the way back there because we never actually did get a a chance to take a look at those on the podcast um, as it turned out. So we'll spend a little bit of time on that and then sort of slowly wind our way back forward while speaking to our two guests. We had both James Hinchcliffe and Sebastian Bourdais in town in Toronto um, earlier this week to preview the Honda Indy Toronto, which is something that is a nice little habit that the Honda Indy Toronto folks have gotten into, bring a couple of the drivers into town to speak to the media. So I had an opportunity to take part in that and had great chats with both of them that I hope that you will enjoy. Um, so let's get started just by doing that rewind to Detroit and get it um, sort of onto the shelf so that we can move on. Um, the person that I spoke with the most about Detroit was James Hinchcliffe, because um, of course that was an up and down weekend for Andretti Autosport but a particularly strong weekend for him uh, especially. And um, we talked about the fact that it was strong for him and um, that battle that he had with Mike Conway where it took it seemed to take Conway forever to get by him despite the fact that he was on the black tires while James was was uh, struggling on the reds. We all recall the uh, the big disparity in the two tire types at, uh, at that event and what that was like for him as well as a number of other topics um, relating to, to Texas and looking forward to Houston and uh, and uh, well, looking forward might be an exaggeration. Neither none of the drivers seem to be particularly excited about that. But we'll get to that later on. First, uh, let's talk to James Hinchcliffe of Andretti Autosport. Hi. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Good. Had the good pleasure of uh, speaking to you a couple times this year. So let's jump right into like some more recent stuff because we don't have to cover the whole thing. Um, really interested in some of the stuff that went on in Detroit specifically. I'm thinking of uh, race two. Race two when when Conway was the only one that started on the black tires mm-hmm. and then he came up behind you and I don't know how you kept him behind you for as long as you did it looked like a hell of a drive can you talk through it yeah I mean it was uh, it was a strategy that didn't work for him on Saturday so I'm not entirely sure why I did it on Sunday um, I've never seen it where there was only one car on, on, a, on a given you know compound mm-hmm. uh, because the reds obviously were falling off a tremendous amount and you know I had the exact same problem the, the day before I had started on the reds him on the blacks and he ended up obviously having his issue uh, trying to get by and you know we we when that caution came out lap 10 or whatever and we had to make that decision and, and we opted to stay out which you know obviously ultimately wasn't the right call but uh, we knew it was going to be a replay the day before and it's tough to pass there anyway which helps uh, but there's no doubt that when you're driving a loose race car with a guy right on your gearbox that you're trying to keep behind you it's one of the most challenging things that that can happen but we kept him by there for you know a decent amount of time and um, yeah I mean Sunday especially if, if the yellows had fallen differently I think we were the guys to beat for sure do you prefer the situation where the tires have more of a difference in performance or do you like sort of the typical where they're a little bit closer no I like it when there's a big disparity you know it makes it harder for us from a driving point of view, from a setup point of view, and the engineers, but uh, it makes the racing way better, you know, when you mix it up like that. Detroit may have been a little bit dramatic because everybody ended up on the same strategy anyway, with the exception of Mike. So uh, that one, it was maybe a little too much. But I mean, we've seen some great races here, some great races, a lot of the street tracks, uh, St. Pete, where, you know, the, the difference was just enough that there was a set that wasn't as good, and there's that, that ebb and flow of the race when, you know, you put them on. So I think that's great. Detroit is talking about repaving. Do you see that as a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing. I mean, it's... um there are certain parts of the track that are just so difficult uh, to be consistent on. It's not even about being fast. It's just you can you can do something three inches different and you hit a weird bump that tosses the car into the wall, you know. And that's I'm all for a challenge, but that that's almost past the point of it, you know, really being a good race and uh, it, it takes away from it in that respect. And you know, the first session of Troy is always just like the worst because it's so low grip and so bumpy. At least it's good by race time. But no, I think a repave of that place will do. A lot of favors. 
Uh, let's go to Texas now. You um, obviously were talking earlier about how the whole Andretti team had some challenges. Uh, do you want to sort of, I don't know how much you could talk about exactly what the issues were. But. Yeah, I mean, it's weird. You know, we, we had pretty good cars there last year. You know, Ryan finished second, and um, right from practice, we knew we were in trouble. Qualifying was, was pitiful. I mean, our high, I think I was the highest guy at ninth or something. And uh, and that's not where where we're used to being. And uh, and in the race, I mean, <laughs> engine failures aside, mechanical failure, mechanical failures aside, um, the cars weren't weren't competitive anyway. You know, so it was a big head scratcher for us. It's uh, it's out of character for the team to not at least have one guy that, that nailed it. <laughs> but we really missed the boat as a team there. So we've we've lost a lot of sleep over that one already. But luckily we've got 300 and you know 40 something days before we got to go back and we can try and sort it out. Right. You heard much about Honda and their struggles. All the Honda cars were sort of further back on the timesheet, especially in race. Have you heard anything from their side on concerns there? No, not yet. I mean, it's it's tough, you know, because four of the strongest Honda cars had really bad cars. Yeah. So it, it, I think it may be, we probably skewed it a little bit against Honda, right. and uh, the picture's probably not as grim. I mean, if, you know, you look at the Speedway, which is our biggest horsepower test, really. I mean, mm-hmm. we... Uh, on the front row, won the race, yeah. so they're doing something right. Yeah. Um, so we're not worried about that. Cool. So at Indianapolis, three quarters of the race ran without a yellow. Mm-hmm. At Texas, it was about halfway before that one incident. That was, I mean, IndyCar said it wasn't a racing incident, but I mean, talk to whoever. Um, so there's starting to be questions floating around about you guys all being so good. Do you need the cars to be a little bit more of a challenge to make the races a little bit more racy? What do you, how do you feel about that? No, you know, if anything, I mean, I think. I think what you're seeing uh, is is the cars are very difficult to drive, mm-hmm. and not that guys are being more conservative, but you're you're having to be a little bit smarter. Um, you're saving yourself a lot more in races than you used to. You know, we'd see big wrecks when everybody was running in a pack, and the difference between you know making a pass and not making a pass was not giving a guy that inch. You know, whereas now I think the racing is better. Um, because we're not crashing into each other, yeah. you know, and, and the cars are tough to drive. There is that sort of ebb and flow. You know, guys will have to be strong in one part. I mean, Texas, it was impossible to keep track of, of who was leading and what, this, what, what this, the story really was mm-hmm. because of the difference in the tires when you, when you came in and pitted. So, um, I mean, it's, I think it's a huge compliment to all the drivers in the series that we could do 150 laps around the speedway, a, you know, a day that hot where, uh, you know, caution-free. But uh, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a case of the cars being too easy to drive. I think it's exactly the opposite. Cool. Looking ahead to Houston now, not looking forward to Houston, I'm assuming, as so many are saying. Um, what are your thoughts going into a weekend where you're going to be doing not one but two races in 100-degree weather and 90% humidity? Yeah, I mean, that's the challenge. You know, it's uh, it's, a, it's a physical track because of the heat, because of the humidity, because of the bumps. It's a short lap. Um, which I, almost makes it harder because there's literally no straightaway on that racetrack. Right. The front straight has a bend in it. The back straight is a constant turn. So it, it may be a short lap, but you really get no chance to rest. And uh, and that's what makes it so tough. And, you know, throwing the... Even if it didn't have bumps, it would be tough. Throwing the fact that it's bumpy as sin and 100 degrees. It's uh, it's pretty much the, the perfect, co- you know, perfect combination of everything you don't want in a race. Oh, yeah, and there's two of them. Right. So, uh, but, you know, that's... it's. The same for everyone, and that's you know that's that's what we're here for is big challenges, and this is going to be probably the biggest challenge of the year for for cars, drivers, teams, everybody. And uh, I know that we personally put a lot of preparation into this event uh, from an on-track and an off-track point of view, and hopefully you know it it reaps reap that we can reap the benefits later. You may have already answered this, but what do you see as being the bigger challenge? Going straight off the month of May in a 500-mile race and doing two races in Detroit six days later, or having a three-week break and then going into what you know is going to be the most grueling weekend of the year? Probably, I mean, probably Detroit. You know, it's been nice having that time off. Having said that, we've been doing a lot of testing, so we, it's not like we've really had time to, to right. relax and recharge. But it does give you the odd day off to uh, to prepare, do certain things that you need to do before a race like that. So there's no doubt that, you know. Especially for Ryan, I mean, we all we all kind of moaned and complained, but uh, nobody had it as bad as he did. And I mean, you saw what happened to him in Detroit. I mean, that yeah. was probably the worst weekend of his career. Yeah. Um, but he, you know, and there's there's probably a good argument that he was you know exhausted from from all the travel and media and everything. Sure. So it's uh, it's tough. It's 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 a careful balance for sure. But I think I think the Detroit weekend was tougher on everybody.
what do you have to do to prepare for a weekend like Houston? Is there anything that you're specifically doing to, to get yourself ready? Well, the, you know, the, the training changes a little bit. You know, about two weeks out, you start adjusting the training a little bit for this kind of race. Um, Certainly, training in, in hotter climates, uh, hotter conditions is, is a big part of that. Uh, and then, you know, the week of, you have to do a, a lot of water loading. Um, you know, as you sort of heard me talking about, you know, your diet changes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you're really trying to get as much rest as possible this week. You kind of the hard work in the gym's done now, mm-hmm. and it's about resting and being recharged when we get to the track. Right, and yet they're still flying you around and making you talk to us. So not very kind of them, but anyhow. That's all right. All right. Well, best of luck next weekend, Thanks and I'll so. uh, see you down there. All right. Perfect. All right, nice see luck. you there. And thanks as always to James. We've had the good uh, pleasure of speaking to him a couple of times this year and he's always very gracious with his time which we greatly appreciate. Interesting to hear him talk about the fact that he actually likes a fair bit of um, disparity between the two tire types on the road courses and thinks that it creates an interesting show which is something that I think we've talked a lot about um, not only here but in the fan base in general for a long time, Paul. Yeah, there's you know, we had the discussion last week, uh, or, or a couple of weeks ago, John and I, I think it was, about the uh, about the tire disparity. No, I guess it was you, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so memorable. <laughs> I, and I sound a lot like John. You do, you do. You guys had those funny accents. <laughs> uh, we, had, we had the discussion down there about the, the tire disparity and, uh, and what the at least what my reaction to it is, but it, it plays out differently with the road course and the street course with the red and the black tires. And there, I think it's a, a, a compelling and interesting uh, strategy to follow is, is because you have the different uh, tires and, uh, and the compounds that, that are designed to wear at different rates. And without rehashing our, our discussions and our arguments of last race, I think it's something that, that needs to be given a little bit more serious consideration uh, on the ovals as well, uh, to to have those different tire compounds. I, I'm sure there are a lot of cons to it, uh, but I think there's a lot of pros to it. So it's interesting to hear uh, James talk about that, that he actually does enjoy those and, and how the differences play out throughout a, a race and, and what an integral part that strategy is of the event. I think if we can find a way to get Firestone satisfied that they're going to build a tire that can be perceived as being a quality tire but still have enough wear in in you know either the oval tire or an oval tire as well as the red tire to make things interesting then then I think you're finding that everybody is happy so well you know you look at formula 1 I don't think is is Pirelli forgive me for my ignorance is it, is Pirelli still the tire manufacturer yes. yeah and I don't think their reputation has suffered with the various uh the various compounds that they bring to the events that some of them go off extremely quickly. I don't think Firestone's reputation has suffered as a result of having the, the red and the black on the road and street courses. So I don't think taking that strategy to the ovals um, would be a detriment to their reputation. I understand the argument that, you know, especially as much as Goodyear tends to get slammed week in and week out in NASCAR, but Firestone has never really had an issue of, of blowing tires and having a safety issue throughout any of their, their lifespan going all the way back to you know the mid-90s when they returned. So it, I think so long as they prevent that catastrophe from happening, I think fans and the series would be supportive of it. And I think there's it's at least worth investigating. I don't know if it's the right answer, but I think it's at least merits a little bit more discussion and and, uh, investigation. I will say that in F1, Pirelli went through a period where there was there was finger pointing about, well, you know, this is not quite what we asked for and blah, 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 blah. But I think, um, and and it's possible that that sort of thing may have made Firestone a little bit more gun shy, but I think there's a, there's a, better balance slightly better balance to be found than what we've what we've seen because every once in a while we just get this glimmer of a race where it's just made really interesting by the tires it wasn't there one at sonoma that's exactly what i was thinking of. i was thinking maybe like 11 or 12 no 12 was when it got good from the cars okay so it must have been been 11 11 yeah that was a phenomenal race there Mm -hmm. in fact it may have been 10 because it seemed like they had another kind of off one where they didn't quite come back the way they had before before the the dw12 so it may have been 2010 but yeah there was one race it was 2010 and do you know why i know this 
Because it was the story about that was one of the first stories that was in our ticker when we launched the new site. Really? Yes, I remember that. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. Such a nostalgic moment. Yes, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, we've been around that long. <laughs> I know. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It is. A time. I had no further point. That was really my, <laughs> my point. All right. Well, um, let me just take a minute then to, to reminisce about being at the event for the first time because um, this was one that I, for some reason, had never actually made it to in person despite the fact that being – it's only a four-hour drive, three and a half if you're driving like me, um, from from Toronto. And it's um, – I think I said this in the live blog. It's one, it's one that, you know – I probably should have made it to earlier, but I don't really blame my parents for not capitulating to my begging to go to Detroit in the mid-1990s. Um, but at any rate, it was... Belle Isle is beautiful. It's, it is a really nice spot. Um, you genuinely are getting there and racing in a park. There were playgrounds in the infield. Um, all of the all of the fan entertainment areas are really well set up. There's a big stage, and they had, you know what? I actually really enjoyed the few minutes of the Shaggy concert that I got. I'll admit it. Please. I know, but he was totally having it up, and he was not taking himself at all seriously, and it was fun. And there was there was just um between that and a lot of the pre-race ceremonies that they had organized, and Roger Penske himself appearing on the video screen saying, thank you, Detroit, for coming out. This is for you. We're so gr- glad to be able to support the city and, and all this. Like, it was just a big pumping up Detroit party. And um, I will even confess that I kind of undersold the the event while I was there to myself because when they announced the attendance figures afterward, which I think they said um, – was it for one day? Was it 45,000? Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah, and I thought to myself, there's, I there's, I would never have thought to myself that they had that many people come through the gates because when I was walking around, it didn't seem that busy, but I guess it's just the way that they had people dispersed. or, or But anyway, yeah, no, the vibe was great. I, um, I really appreciated the fact that the people were so friendly, and every time I ran into a local they would ask me how their city was treating them and, and, um, and what I thought of Detroit. Like there's just an, a really deeply inspiring amount of pride in that city and that event. And I, and I love what it is doing for, for the city of Detroit. My only one tiny little quibble with it. Um, and I said this in the closing of the live blog is I'm really not sure that, um, that the week immediately following the 500 is the best place for it. Because I and really think it takes a lot of the esteem and a lot of the momentum out of out of um, coming out of the 500. And that's the point I was just going to ask you about. It it makes it's good for the event to be right there after Indianapolis. It has the momentum coming to it. Is it good for this series? Because it's good for the 45,000 or however many are actually on the grounds. Yeah. But in terms of retaining casual fans and the momentum coming out of Indianapolis, I'm not convinced it's still the best event to have coming right off of it, off the month of May. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I still think going back to Texas is, is the best event there, um, even more so than the traditional Milwaukee event. Uh, I think when you when you start to reel some people in with Indianapolis, I think you want to hit them again with the same kind of racing. I don't think you want to go to the complete opposite side of the spectrum as you do when you go from Indianapolis to Detroit. Uh, it, it's just so far removed from what they saw the week prior that I, I think it struggles. To, I think it definitely breaks the momentum. I think you lose the, a lot of those casual fans that, that you gain coming out of Indianapolis. And I just think there's a better place for Detroit uh, than the weekend after the weekend after the 500. The GM people disagree with you. <laughs> oh, certainly. Well, of course they do. They invest an enormous amount in this event, too, and that's worth pointing out separately, is that Chevrolet was painted all over this event, and uh, and they were they were huge, huge supporters. Um, Jim Campbell, the uh, – I can't – forgive me, I can't remember his exact title, but it's to the effective VP of performance cars for, for GM um, – 
person by person went through the media center after the end of events on Saturday and thanked every single one of them for being there and covering the event. Um, it's, it's just phenomenal. The effort and the, and the, um, the devotion that they as a corporation have to the event. So, um, kudos to them for that as well. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it, is, it, it is good to see that corporate backing of that because you don't often see, uh, the, the head of the title sponsor necessarily going through the events, the press room or out in the public to, to support that event. So it is excellent to see them really getting behind it. And I guess they're, they're confirmed the title sponsor through at least 2016 now as well. So it's good to see that long-term stability or at least medium term stability <laughs> uh, for the event in the next couple of years as well. Absolutely. From a scheduling standpoint, I understand their challenges there too, because the, the racing season in this part of the world really only starts at about Memorial day and Memorial Day is kind of busy. Um, and from there, you really have only until Labor Day, weather-wise. Um, July is pretty well booked out for IndyCar with pretty steady events. Although, why Iowa landed where it did, I'll never know. But we'll find out. I was supposed to, to be there. this last weekend. Yeah. yeah, I don't quite get that. But anyway, um, certainly I, I tip my hat to IndyCar for not trying to go up against Le Mans. And that I can't recall whether that's a new thing for them, but it's a it's a very good move because uh, I mean all eyes the rest of the world over in the motorsport world are, are turned to Le Mans that weekend and there's just no there's no competing with it. Um, and so how last weekend got missed I'm not really completely sure on, but um, I know that Detroit has some other competing events as well, and and I don't know if. I think there's an opening in the schedule in August, but perhaps that didn't work out for whatever reason. And I know that, that GM is quite attached to the immediately post-Indy date. So, Well, everybody wants the yeah, post-Indy sure. date. Who, Eddie Gossett who, wants okay. that at Texas. Michael Andretti wants that for Milwaukee. There's nobody who doesn't want that date. Yeah, it's about who writes the biggest check, I guess. Who writes the biggest check and what's the best benefit to the IndyCar series? Right. Is what it should be. It's what it should be. If that, I mean, we've sat here and argued about whether that's truly what it is, but big checks are a good thing too. And good that support helps. is a good thing too. So that does help. I am actually looking forward to going back next year, um, which is, I will confess, is not a feeling I expected to have coming out, going into the event. Um, Detroit has a reputation. I did not find, I, I did not stay past seven o'clock at night, but I didn't find that um, it lived up to the to that reputation in terms of what I saw while I was there. Um, everything was was great. Everything went well. The, the event was well organized. The people were super friendly. And I just, it, it was a pleasant event. I enjoyed covering it and I'm looking forward to returning. Did you visit 8 Mile while you were there? No. Oh. Oh, M&M and I are not tight. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> no, well, the other thing, too, and I didn't mention this, actually, is that my family came with me. Did I tell you this? I, well, I knew your family came yeah, with me. Yeah, my, my husband and daughter came with me. Um, but since but, you married a foreigner, he can't come out of Canada. That, well, he very soon. We're, we're getting close. He's just about got his permanent resident application approved. We're, we're in the very last stage now. Um, but he because he is in the process of of landing as a permanent resident in Canada he can't actually cross a border until that process is complete and so what we did was we all drove down and then he and my daughter stayed in Windsor during the day while I was across working in Detroit and then I just flew across back across the bridge uh, and I have um, the express border pass card now which made it really really easy and um, I just stayed on the Windsor side with my family every night, so it was really lovely. And I was back with them by supper time each night, so it worked out really, really well. Probably something we'll do again in the future. Well, there you go. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Texas briefly now, because um, as I mentioned earlier, I also had a chance today to speak with Sebastian Bourdais. And um, the first thing that we talked about was that penalty that he drew in Texas um, against that against um, when he when he made contact with Justin Wilson. And uh, he had quite an interesting 
perspective on what he um, did or rather did not see or did not believe happened and um, some some news about what IndyCar's discussions behind the scenes might have been on that as well as some insights into exactly what these drivers are going through when they uh, will hit the streets of Houston next weekend. So lots to talk about with Sebastian Bourdais. And I do apologize, the audio um, just sort of starts a little bit abruptly at the beginning of this recording. So uh, don't be jarred. Here we go. It's the start of a relationship, and it's it's good. It's it's really good. We just haven't had the results yet, but yeah. the pace has been there, so it's right. encouraging. Cool. Uh, let's talk about Texas. A couple of different aspects of that. First of all, there was that penalty that you received after the end of the race for the contact with Justin Wilson. Mm-hmm. What was your view on that incident, and did you think that it was a fair penalty? Well, I mean, uh, you know, I guess that's my only fault. It's uh, when I came out of the car, I, since I had not, you know, I wasn't quite sure of what had happened because I didn't. Feel I had done anything. Right. I just kind of left it open, but uh, you know, after reviewing the video, they just I picked my side, went to the left, and Justin basically tried to complete the pass on the apron and came back on the track and took us both out. So um, you know, they're they're reviewing the process and they're supposed to revert the penalty. So we'll see uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's not been official yet. So it's supposed to have been official for like two days, but I haven't seen that. Yet. Right. Okay. So we'll see. We'll sit tight and wait. Great. Um, what about the racing in general at Texas? Did you feel like they had the formula right this year? I mean, it's a, it's always going to be a very tough race for us um, to, to put on. Um, you know, the banking and the transitions in and out of the corners are really, really dramatic. And um, it's, you know, it puts on a decent show. I think, you know, obviously now we, we went away from pack racing, yeah. and that's that's the great thing. Um, we show that we can race at these places. Is it really great for us? I, you know, not a big, big fan of it. Yeah. Uh, tire degradation is, is really high because pavement's getting pretty old mm-hmm. um, and, and rough so it, you know the fact that we don't have so much downforce anymore you, you do wear out the tires pretty quick mm-hmm. um, but you know it, it definitely gives a different spin to the dynamic of the race because you have a, a lot of speed difference between the cars who are finishing their stint and the guys coming out of the pits it's like 15 mile an hour difference around the, the, the place so uh, it's, uh, it's it's definitely pretty exciting but it must be pretty difficult for the fans to keep up with the action though I think it's, it sometimes doesn't translate to television but in mentioning that 15 mile an hour difference is that enough of a difference that you get to be concerned when you're on track about closing speed is it or is it not too bad well I mean thankfully you know we have the spotters and, and you know they are telling us when you know the guys are coming behind you or you know so you know what's going on for the most part but for sure you know when you're going around the outside of a guy who's just trying to keep the thing on the on the black stuff it's uh, it's definitely not always very comfortable right sure um, in terms of of the length of time up until your incident in Texas, there was no yellow flag period at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, Indianapolis went three quarters of the race without a yellow flag period. And so the question is starting to be floated. You guys are all so good um, that it, is it time to give you more? Do you feel like you would like to see more power from the engines? Well, we, we can't really do that. That's the problem. I mean, in Indy we could, but at Texas, I mean, that's the reason why we're uh, where we are is because we know that you know if we if we go any faster than that, then we're going to start running into the blackout and everything. So, you know, there's only so much the body can take. Um, you know, in terms of G's and and we know at Texas the limit is is you know somewhere pretty close. And um, I'm not sure you want to be going more than 220 around a, a one and a half mile oval, anyways. Right. Um, so. It is, it is what it is, but definitely the teams are figuring the cars out more and more and, and there's less and less question marks and the guys are getting pretty comfortable you know, running around and, and doing their job. So it's, uh, it's definitely uh, uh, requiring every little bit of, con- of uh, concentration and, and you know, there's not so many mistakes made anymore. Yeah. Um, let's compare the doubleheaders in Detroit and coming up in Houston because very different challenges between the two of them. You came right out of the month of May into the doubleheader Detroit having just run 500 miles, but the weather was maybe more temperate, very bumpy track, but maybe sort of easier conditions to deal with, whereas at Houston next week you had a bit of a break, but now you've got this intense heat that you're going into as well as a sort of unpredictable street course. What do you think about that? I think, you know, the, the Houston place is, is it's a nice setup. It's a challenging course and everything, but uh, yeah, I, I'm like everybody, you know, I'm questioning the date, really. I think... I don't see where the good idea is to be running around, you know, in the 100 degree weather and, and 90% humidity. Right? Mm-hmm. 
it's it's going you know if it's really bad for us it's going to be really bad for the fans and the grandstands and you know I just wish we'd not put ourselves in that situation but it is what it is and we're just going to have to make it through so uh, as far as we're concerned I'm I'm a little concerned you know for you know, just to finish the first race and for sure the second race you know because obviously we're going to get so dehydrated that at some point you know it becomes not very safe even for us so we'll see we'll see where we end up but yeah if we could try not to repeat these mistakes you know, it'd be great I mean, we, you know, in 12 they went to Fontana at that kind of you know time of the season in, in July or August or whenever it was and it was deemed to be a bad idea and you know we're doing it again this year so I don't know it's kind of a never-ending story but uh, yeah you know there are some pros and some counts and we're just gonna have to make it through but hopefully yeah, hopefully we're all gonna be okay sure um, is there any particular training that you've been doing to prepare for this this upcoming weekend anything special that you can do well yeah I mean you just work in the heat you know I mean obviously I'm in St. Pete and you know it's yeah. very similar to the Houston weather except it's even worse over there um, you know so um, you just, you know, spending three hours on the on the bike, you know, in the heat of the day under the sun and everything. It's the best you can probably do, you know, in kayak on the on the steamy water. But um, the thing is, you know, you, you need to do it in a in a wetsuit pretty much, you know. And then I'm not so sure it's a good idea. Um, so it's it's just you know it, it gets bad for us when the humidity cranks up. Um, you know, if it's hot but dry, it's all right. But the, the combination of the heat and the humidity then it just makes you it seals the fire suit pretty much because when the fire suit's all wet, you know, there's not much coming through and right. and that's when it's like racing in a plastic bag. So it's it's really very unpleasant and, and you know, there's only so much water you can lose until it, it gets uh, it becomes a problem and your vision gets hampered and, and your fingers start tinkling and you know it's it's uh, it's never fun to race when you're dehydrated. No. And you can't compensate the losses. That's the biggest thing. You know, we only have about a, a liter in the car to drink, and it's you know it's going to be boiling water by the time we get to have distance anyway. So, yeah. All sorts of fun coming our way. <laughs> well, that's a great description of, of what you are all going through while you're uh, while you're out there dealing with all. Unfortunately, this. yes. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, we're standing here in Toronto, and of course, this has been the site of, uh, as well as that's many, perfect. Yes, of, yeah, uh, yeah. many great battles, particularly with your old rival Paul Tracy, who we found out yesterday is being um, inducted into the Canadian Motorsport Hall of Fame. Well, he deserves it. Great. Well, that was going to be my question to you. Any particular thoughts on on Paul? I mean, he's. Uh, you know, he was, he's a great, uh, a great racer, and he's accomplished a lot. And uh, you know, there's one thing you cannot um, say about him is that he definitely deserves, you know, the credit for, you know, perseverance. And then uh, he's been trying really hard his whole career. And I guess sometimes maybe he would have had more results had he tried a little less. But nevertheless, you know, he was ne never shy of, of uh, putting a good effort out there. So you know, it's. Uh, very talented guy and I'm happy for him. Great. Okay, that's all I need. Thank you very much for your time and uh, see you in Houston. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Great to have Sebastian Bourdais on the podcast for the first time and um, interesting to hear that the announcement may be coming that that penalty will be rescinded and that, that was notable to me especially because so many people jumped to Justin Wilson's defense when, when the initial penalty was announced. What was your thought on it, Paul? Well, I thought whether whichever side you thought was right or wrong in it, I mean, it seemed really harsh. I mean, mm -hmm. to put him on probation until the end of the year for, you know, it's not like he has a history of dirty driving. It's not like they have a a uh, a history of, of altercations between those two drivers. Has, hashtag indie rivals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> This isn't a power and pageant out here. Let's let's be honest here. And from the replays we had now, unless race control had had replay video that we didn't see from ESPN, I mean, it it, it did, certainly didn't look malicious. We've seen a lot worse this year. And yeah, I understand maybe the the uh, ramifications of such a of a of an event on an oval are much higher than you have on a road course. But still, it, it looked completely unintentional, non-malicious, and to put him on probation for the rest of the year just seemed really, really harsh, which I think is why so many people uh, right away assumed maybe there was some other 
altercation that happened besides mm-hmm. the actual on-track event. But well, it's uh, a we shame got... that the initial release was so vague that it was it left that open to interpretation. Right, right. But you know, we we followed up with IndyCar. We got confirmation that no, it was strictly for the on-track incident. And well, as it was surprising. As Sebastian said, he his view on the incident was that Justin tried to make the pass and put himself on the apron and then got unsettled and came back up into him. So if that's the ex- explanation that IndyCar has taken as as reality and that's why they're going to rescind it, I don't think too many people would argue that either. It's hard when you're not the one in the car knowing what's happening, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of have to take the driver's word for it on that. So... Um, something that is interesting from both of the interviews that we had today is um, hearing from both James Hinchcliffe and Sebastian Bourdais that neither one of them thinks that the uh, the cars need to be more difficult to drive. This is a storyline that we've been kind of following since Indianapolis. And um, a few weeks ago, we had both Jacques Villeneuve and Simon Pagenaud on the podcast saying that they thought that the cars could use more horsepower and um, maybe be a little bit more difficult to control and, and shake things up a little bit for the drivers and make things more interesting. Um, both James and Sebastian were of the opinion that the cars are just fine. Thank you very much. And, uh, and Sebastian particularly noted, and I don't think very many people would disagree, especially, you know, we had a big long chat about this on the last podcast, that at Texas, there's really not any more that you can give the cars in terms of speed because of, um, we, we all know what happens on the, the 1.5 mile levels in the high banking with uh, drivers blacking out and such, and nobody wants that. So, you know, what, what do you do? Paul, any, any change from you in terms of how you see things after hearing from those two? No, I still don't. I, I agree, and I, I've said this several times over the last few years. There's really not much more you can do with power there uh, unless you significantly reduce downforce. Because really, what what did we qualify at this Or we, like we were driving the cars. <laughs> what, what was the pull speed? Was it like 219 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it was so, quite a bit over last year's too, I think. so. And, and what did cart run at? Were they like 234? I want to say 237. Yeah, somewhere in that ballpark. So, I mean, realistically, you've probably only got five to eight miles an hour on average that you can that you can go up in speeds before you start running into trouble. So, if you add more power, you're going to have to bring down the lap speeds, which means slowing the cars in the corner, and then you spread out the racing. And people are already complaining about spread out racing at Texas. It just seems that if you you start adding more power, you you don't necessarily make the racing any better. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you kind of alluded to this, but it's worth saying explicitly in that Indianapolis and Texas are very, very different animals too, right? Oh, certainly. Um, and I think it was Bourdais who said, you know, maybe we could use a little more at Indianapolis, but Texas, you don't want to touch too much. And looking at it, it under that much of a microscope might be the best move in terms of coming up with the right formula. So, Well, and really IndyCar has been tweaking the, the formula, certainly with the arrow that we've seen at Texas, but across this, the season, they've been tweaking with turbocharger boost as well. So they have that option to add or remove power at the certain events. Now, the question, of course, becomes how much, if you increase power at Indianapolis, say, by 5 kPa, what does that do for for the engines in terms of cost? Does that, That's been the, 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 the big push in the last couple of years. Yeah, we can increase 10 kPa for Fast Friday and Pull Day, but we can't do it for race day because that affects engine reliability. Well, what's the trade-off there? How much, how much more can they afford to go during the race, how much is necessary. But at Texas, can they turn it up there? Can they can they add boost at Texas to to bring the speeds up a little bit? And, and you can fine-tune there. We don't want to go too high because we don't want the drivers blacking out again, obviously. Uh, and I don't think the engines are quite where they could even get there if they wanted to. They're not at the, the early 2000s cart level. Um, but could they bring the speeds up a couple miles an hour on the straightaway and leave the tires where they are so that you're, you're, again, still making it a little bit more difficult to drive the car with that power? 
does that become a more interesting race? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But maybe it's worth a try. See what happens and and see how these cars respond to that. Because uh, you know we're hearing from several of the drivers that no, they're certainly not easy to drive. But I don't know that they're necessarily the beast that a lot of guys have have expressed a desire to to be driving there either. One point that I want to pick out and discuss separately from what you just said is that I have. I know that a lot of people feel differently, but I've always been one of those people who is a, a fan of uh, of engine um, lack of reliability. Because oh, I agree. Yeah. Perceived or not, it, an engine blowing is is seen as a show of of technology being pushed to the limit, mm-hmm. right? And so yeah. the like those years and years and years and years where Honda was a spec supplier and those engines would would never ever give up. And people kind of got a little bit bored of it because everybody knew that they were rev limited and they really weren't being pushed all that hard. And so if you can show, particularly at Indianapolis, that you're that you're putting enough into these things that they're starting to pop every once in a while, I think that creates interest. I, I know that the, the engine manufacturers don't feel that way, but from a fan standpoint, I think it looks better. What was the year CART ran at California... Was it 2000 or 2001 where they had like nine engine failures and it always seemed to be in the top two or three positions? And this it just is ringing kept, a bell, but I can't place it. Yeah, I can't remember either. But it, it, but every time someone would get to the lead, it would or in the right to the top of the po- the the pylon, their engine would blow. So I mean, you got out to uh, 450, 480 miles. And it was a big question. Whoever's going to in the lead, is their engine even going to last? Well, that's the thing about it yeah. is that it, yeah. it puts that wild card in of yes, this person's you know two laps ahead or whatever, but is the engine going to make it? As much as I hate to say it, I totally agree with you. Yeah, well, I know I that's to... painful for you. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I know, but that's I think that's part of the thrill of motorsport that's been missing for a while is that wild card, that mm-hmm. question, because oh. these days so often. You can you you can assume that once somebody's you know they're gone they're gone, but we yeah. saw a little bit of that at Texas, didn't we? A few a, a few Honda a engines, you know, Marcos most spectacularly, but there were a couple others that that went as well. So, and you know, Marcos on lap what three? Yeah, I guess Sato's Sato's let go in a pretty good uh, fire display. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that was fairly late in the race as well. Yeah. James's uh, very diplomatic answer about no, I haven't heard anything from Honda was was uh, you know I'm not sure how much truth there is to that. Not to call James out, but we'll see. I'm sure there'll be more. Didn't um, didn't Racer have an article shortly after that race with Honda basically saying we don't think this is going to be a problem again, and then kind of you wanted to fill in until Fontana. I think we talked about this already. Right, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what's going to happen when they get to Fontana, because that's certainly another wide open, wide open race where they're 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 putting the throttle down and they're pretty much going wide open for 500 miles. Mm-hmm. Pocono, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, I don't think they do the full lap flat out at Pocono, do they? I don't believe so. I don't remember which turn. I think did, three, did they go flat out at one and then two and three they lift. Two they don't. Two no, is more like a king. I think it's three that's the the yeah. tough one. Yeah. That's so, I mean, they're, they're gonna, they get a little bit of a chance to breathe at Pocono. Uh, but Fontana is going to be the one that's going to be interesting when we get there to see, does Honda have the reliability to really push for the full 500 miles? Mm-hmm. It's going to be a question they're going to have to answer. And there's a lot of points on the line when you get to Fontana. Yeah. Well. And create some drama. It'll be fun. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess we're ready to look ahead to Houston this weekend. Um, we were hoping to have John on the podcast tonight. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. John will be on site. John resides in Houston with his family or just outside of Houston. So, um, this, that's a home race for him. He'll be there to, uh, to cover for more front wing. And I just found out recently that I'm going to be going as well. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the details behind why, um, not to brag, but because I know that IndyCar fans tend to be interested in this sort of thing. So the, the title sponsor for Houston, as we all know, is Shell. And um, they have their their world and headquarters. Pennzoil. Well, Pennzoil is a is a sh- is associated company, isn't it? 
Yes, but I believe the official is the Shell, Shell and Pennzoil. Oil. Yes, but you know Shell is the company behind it all, um, and their world headquarters are based in the general area. I don't know if they're actually within the city of Houston or not. Do you? I do not. No, close enough. Anyway, that they're they're quite heavily invested in getting some people in to cover this, and um, this is something that since getting into the world of, of automotive journalism, I've discovered it happens pretty commonly, but not as much in motorsport as in sort of the production car world, where um, either either manufacturers or big sponsors of this type will actually foot the bill for bringing journalists in to, to give some coverage to this sort of event. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be on the list of people that was tagged for this one. So um, I mentioned that because I know that a lot of IndyCar fans will like to know that Shell is investing that kind of, uh, that kind of resource into bringing some people in for this event. I'm not exactly sure at this point how much I'm going to be able to cover it for the site because I have to see, I haven't got an agenda yet for, for myself to see where my obligations are in terms of, um, in terms of where I need to be and when for Shell. Um, I'm expecting to be at the track during most track activity. And when I am there, you can expect to be hearing from me in some capacity. Um, Mostly due to, and I will I will give them love all season long, so please bear with me, Verizon, who very kindly have um, eased my roaming woes. My $250 roaming bill from May will be my last. <laughs> Thank God. Um, because they have uh, fronted me a tablet that has Verizon 4G LTE access. Hooray! And so now I can use that to bring you all of the coverage of IndyCar events that I want to. And so I will be doing that as much as I possibly can on the ground in Houston. And I very much look forward to it, despite the weather that's being promised at the moment. Which... Everybody's talking about the heat. Everybody's worried about the 100-degree weather, but that's not what they're calling for at the moment. Guess what they're calling for? Low 90s and rain. Oh, yay. That sounds <laughs> it's gonna like be monsoon season. fun, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that'll be awesome. So it's going to be low 90s and 100% humidity. Woo-hoo. I'm so jealous I'm not going <laughs> Well, we'll see how it goes. You know, I have no qualms about hiding in the media center and the shell suite if that's what it comes to. (laughs) At least you're honest about it. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not getting wet. (laughs) Well, I probably will. Actually, I'm quite dedicated. Um, But anyway, so one other thing that we can talk about about Houston before we try to uh, make our bets as to who might reign supreme after the doubleheader is... um, of course, a big topic of discussion is the changes to the track in terms of um, creating a safer environment for the uh, for the drivers and the fans. The grandstand that was near the incident um, that ended Dario Franchini's year last October is gone, and I think we can all understand that that was the right decision. Um, but there was an article on Racer.com by Marshall Pruitt uh, that details some other changes that are happening to the Houston track as well. This one I found interesting because I believe that Toronto uses the same style of um, barriers as Houston. And when I do my track walk in a couple of weeks, my traditional track walk, I'm going to have a look and see if that's correct. Um, but evidently, the way that the Houston barriers were designed was that there are two outer metal poles Um, that stand on the outsides of the concrete um, blocks that create the base that are meant to to maintain the majority of the resistance in the event that they're hit by a a flying car. Um, But there's also supposed to be a third pole that was designed to go in the middle that was not in place last year just to to, um, add a little bit extra resistance in case a car happens to hit right in the middle of the fencing. So from, if I'm understanding Marshall's article correctly, what happened was that Dario hit pretty well in the middle of one of the segments. And that's why you saw that piece of fence go flying into the grandstand. Cause that was quite a vivid shot that I remember very strongly from, from that incident was that big chunk of fencing going up into the stand. Um, and evidently, if you put this third pole in place, then that is to prevent that from happening, as well as some tethers and stuff to keep it in place. And so in places where they have grandstands, 
and wherever there is a spot where a car could feasibly launch they've got that third pole in place and they have omitted it for the rest of the track and that seems reasonable to me but i'm not an engineer what's your thought paul seems reasonable to me yeah Mm. certainly in front of the in front of the grandstands is where you want to make sure you alleviate as much risk as possible so if that's what they feel is the best way then by all means i would support that And evidently they've laid down some new concrete on the front straight as well. And I don't think there's anybody who's going to argue with that. Maybe we should um, give Shelby Blackstock a call, one of our Mazda Road to Indy bloggers, because he was really quite concerned. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Apparently the track was very hard on his car last year, and he was a little bit worried going back. But reportedly um, Mike Lanigan was telling Marshall that he's he's, – the, the event has invested a lot of money in smoothing out the surface. It's still bumpy. It's still a street course, but it's um, it's supposed to be a little bit better. And um, especially on the front straight where they had to put that tire chicane in last year, they're not expecting to have to do that. So, um, so we'll see when we get down there. They've had some more time to put the track together. They've had some time and some ability to invest some some resources into getting this this stuff done and um it seems that things are going in the right direction down there but certainly once we get there on the ground we'll let you know what we see well you think shell and Pennzoil have a vested interest in making sure that the car they're the primary sponsor of doesn't have a transmission failure because of the track conditions again could it happen to anybody but it didn't <laughs> and that's really really bad luck but it could have happened to anybody but it didn't fine all right, so we've got two races here. Um, trying to think, no, because, sorry, finish a, t- a sentence already, Steph. Um, last year, Detroit, there were two different winners. Toronto, there was Scott Dixon swept both. Mm-hmm. And then last year at Houston, it was uh, Scott Dixon for one and Will Power for the other. So we've already had Detroit. We've had two different winners there, albeit from the same team. And this is our second doubleheader of the year. So who do you think has a shot or who, which two drivers, if you wish, would have a shot at uh, taking home victories this weekend? I'll take, I'll take power for one and I'll take Pagano for the other. That's kind of right about where I was too, I think. I don't know why. Power did win one of these last year. Ganassi just doesn't seem to be quite on their game. And that's something that's been starting to, to be a point of discussion. Um, I don't know if that quote from Detroit really got any traction or not, but I remember um, sitting in the press conference with Charlie Kimball, who finished second in one of the races. Is that right? It was a, it was a podium press conference. I'm, I'm completely blanking on exactly what his finishing spot was. Um, and he said that he, he was asked about whether they'd had um, – whether whether Chip had been sort of banging on the doors trying to trying to rally the drivers a bit, and he said, uh, "Yeah, the drivers got together with the boss and we had a pep talk. I think that's <laughs> what we're calling it now." <laughs> <laughs> so the translation being, Chip is not happy, um, and of course that is something that they are all looking to change, but so far hasn't happened. And it'll be interesting to see if this is an event that's a turnaround for them. Maybe it'll be another Pocono, a repeat of last year. Or, and maybe this, this weekend we won't have quite the same, uh, we won't have any, any Ganassi involvement, let alone dominance. We'll see. But yeah, no, I think I think Power and Pagano are good bets. And I, you know what, though? You can't really count Conway out. No. No. Mm-mm. So uh, he could definitely be a wild card to, to sneak in there. It's amazing to see how strong that team is right now. They they are clicking, that's for sure. Yeah, it's it's really cool to watch and uh, really cool to track in our event summary as well, which I'll now plug since I've got the nice segue. Um, that is live, our, our um, Shell and Pennzoil Grand Prix of Houston event summary, where you can find the weekend schedule, the weather forecast, the um, pre-race statistics, and throughout the weekend you'll find all the timesheets and the qualifying order and the and the race results and everything as soon as we can get it. And you can always find our latest event summary at morefrontwing.com slash event summary. So that is another thing that I will be updating from that handy Verizon tablet. Hooray. Nice. Yeah. Hey, are you going to get Bell or Rogers to uh, reciprocate and get me a nice uh, tablet while I'm up there? No. <laughs> Sorry. 
right. It's not the hey, Bell or Rogers IndyCar series. This is true. You know, one thing you mentioned that just came to my mind just a moment ago, you talked about uh, Scott Dixon swooping Toronto last year. Mm-hmm. We talked a week or a couple weeks ago about Fuzzies no longer supporting the Triple Crown this year, but I believe they've also pulled, or somebody, whoever sponsored it previously, is no longer doing the doubleheader sweep uh, weekend sweep. That's right. That was so nice. This year. Sonax, that's right, right. Yeah, that was doing those last year, and that hasn't come up either. That's a shame, because that was a cool award. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be I nice to noticed... see somebody else pick that up. Yeah, just when you mentioned that, it popped into my head. Mm-hmm. It's funny how these things just disappear. Uh-huh. I missed that press release. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Anyhow. Um... Let's see, one more thing. Houston, <clears throat> also this week, something I'm interested to see how this actually plays out, or if it does... I believe uh, uh, Ray Hall is running their second car this weekend. Um, why am I drawing a blank on who's running it? Luca, Luca, Luca. Felipe. Help me out here. Yes, yes. Running the second car. Back in March or April, when IndyCar sent out their revised um, their, their revised point system, one of the things buried down there was that they had removed the 10-spot penalty for a, a, a an engine change. But there was a mention that if an entrant changed an engine, that they would start the next race from the rear of the field. Mm. Now, that hasn't come into play yet because so far I don't think any of the engine changes that have been entrant-initiated have been have been involved with any of the quote-unquote leader circle teams or, uh, yeah, leader circle teams. But my understanding is that the 16 car that Oriol Servio was driving changed an engine by their own volition between qualifying and the 500 at Indianapolis. This is the next event that that 16 car has run. So according to that press release, if it plays out, then I believe Luca should be starting the first race from the back of the field. Why didn't we see that apply to anyone else? Because a whole bunch of people changed engines at Indianapolis. Because they said no engine change penalties would be served at Indianapolis. They would be served at the next event. I don't recall any being served at Detroit, though. But none of the guys that changed their engines have run. Right. It was only, okay. I believe they were, and and forgive me, I I believe there were four, and I think they were Martin Plowman, Alex Tagliani. Villeneuve. Jacques Villeneuve. Yeah, you're right. And Serbia. Serbia, Serbia. Yeah, Serbia was yeah. the fourth. So the other three obviously haven't run again, and this is the first race for the 16 entry to run again. Yeah, you're right. I completely forgot that I did note that to myself at the time, that it was Indy 500 only entrance that had done that. That's interesting. You should keep an so, eye out for that. We'll see what happens. When when I uh, talked to IndyCar offic- PR officials in, in May, there were parts of that release that they didn't seem familiar with and, and didn't even seem to know that they were there. So it'll be interesting to see if this actually gets applied or if it kind of gets shuffled under the rug or if anyone's even paying attention. We'll see. Womp womp. Womp womp. <laughs> All right. Well, just a couple of quick notes before we sign off. Um, we'll do the, the community bulletin here. So the Yellow Party, um, if you've never been, please do check out the post that I put up a couple of weeks ago on, on morefrontwing.com explaining what it's all about. It's a really cool event. I went to my first one at the one in Indianapolis. I really loved it. Um, and there's another one happening in Houston. And by the time you're listening to this podcast, it will be Thursday night. Um, if, you're, if you're listening to it brand new, tomorrow night. Um, and you can find all the details about that at theyellowparty.org. And if you can't make it to this one, find out how to get to the next one. You're supporting a great cause, Racing for Cancer, the charity that uh, Ryan Hunter Ray founded in memory of his mother to, to um, raise money to uh, provide relief and a cure for the 28 million people suffering from cancer worldwide, as well as another number of other um, smaller cancer charities that benefit as well. So um, definitely something worth supporting and um, you'll be blown away by everything that's on offer at one of these parties. So please do try to get out to one if you possibly can. And if you missed it on the site earlier this week, we had a feature by our contributor, John Lingle, on Michael Johnson, a paraplegic racer who is competing in the Mazda Road to Indy in the Pro Mazda Championship with JDC Motorsports. And it was a very in-depth feature, very well done, about um, what caused 
uh, Michael's injury, what the thought process was in his, his transition from motorcycles where he re, where he received the injury into open wheel race cars, as well as the development of the system that allows him to race some of the background um, of what he had to go through to be permitted to race and what his goals are now, um, basically to be um, to a competitor in the, in the Indianapolis 500. It's well worth a read. So you can find that also by navigating to our homepage at morefrontwing.com. And if you don't find it right in that top ticker up there, if you just click through on Pro Mazda, it'll be pretty easy to find. So unless I've missed anything or you have something else you want to bring up, then I think we're ready to call it a night, Paul. I've got nothing. Awesome. Well, you'll be hearing from us all weekend long throughout the Shell and Pennzoil Grand Prix of Houston. Please don't forget to check out our live blog and our event summary and anything else that may happen to come up throughout the event. And we'll be back next week to give you a rundown of that and preview the, um, what's the name of the one at Pocono these days? The Pocono IndyCar 500. Okay, the upcoming Pocono IndyCar 500. And until then, if you need IndyCar news and views, get a grip with more front wing.